there is an uh, unmistakable correlation between what we're wearing and where we're going. What we're wearing and what we're doing. I have this sweater. It's my favorite sweater. I've had it since or probably our first year of marriage. I've had it for over 20 years for sure. It's black. That's it. Um, <laughs> just like it. It's comfortable. I wear it all the time. It's like my uniform. Uh, and, uh, but when I'm, when I'm invited to uh, go to weddings, I never wear it. I don't even think about wearing it. I've got these shoes in my garage. They're uh, grass-stained and old and dirty, and I wear them when I'm cutting the lawn. And I've never once woke up on a Sunday morning and thought about, you know, I'm going to go in the garage and grab those and wear those uh, to church. It just never crossed my mind. What you're wearing has everything to do with where you're going and what you're doing. I have these other shoes that I bought for the youth nights at the 223 because I'd play basketball with the youth. I'd wake up Saturday morning, realize I'm not young, and I was like, I need to get better shoes. So I bought these shoes. My family thinks they're ridiculous. Uh, I call them my air dads. Uh, And they're these uh, big black balloon-like cartoon basketball shoes. They're fantastic. And um, when I'm going out with Susan, I never wear them because I love my wife and she thinks they're ridiculous. So I would not put on something that the object of my affection and love thinks I should not put on. So I take them off. Our text this morning is Romans chapter 13. The point of all of this being that the way we dress, uh, it depends on where we're going, and we dress for the occasion. And in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul calls, calls the church to consider very thoughtfully where we're going and to dress for the occasion, to think very thoughtfully about where life is headed and then to put on what's appropriate, that calling us as Christians to live lives of love and grace from the premise that we're recipients of undeserved love, of undeserved grace. And so the text describes the spiritual union with Christ as wearing Christ, putting on Christ, being clothed in Christ. And it's provoking the first church in Rome and provoking this church here in KW to consider whose truths we're wearing that are the driving force behind what we're doing as a result of where we believe life is going. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 7. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay your taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding. Accept the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not, uh, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, they are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in daytime, not in carousing and in drunkenness and sexual immorality and debauchery or quarreling and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is God's word. Now, the shape and the flow of the letter of Romans is the shape and the flow of the gospel. Guilt, grace, 
gratitude. That's the flow. Chapters 1 through 4 exposes humanity's guilt. Chapters 5 through 11 expounds on God's great grace. Chapters 12 through 16, the life that we live as a result of that scandalous grace and gratitude. And one of the common misconceptions of the Christian faith, and for those of you here this morning who may be exploring Christian faith thoughtfully, um, one of the common misconceptions is, well, the Christian obeys texts like this one in Romans 13. They're here because we obey so that God will accept us. We obey so that in the end God receives us. That's actually false. That's a false gospel. We don't obey so that God accepts us and receives us. We obey because in Jesus Christ, God has already accepted us. God has already received us, and that's a done deal at the cross. So Christian obedience has absolutely nothing to do with earning and absolutely everything to do with imitation. So for those of you who are here, new to the scriptures, exploring Christian faith, that is an important distinction in Christianity that informs the way that we look at texts like, like this one. I'll, I'll stick with this theme that this text gives us of being clothed in Christ, of putting on Christ. Let's stick with this theme. How does God accept us? Well, let's talk about dress codes. If you go to a school and they have a uniform and you show up and you're not in uniform, you don't get in because there's a dress code. If you go to a, are, are invited to go to a black tie gala and you show up in a Metallica t-shirt, acid wash jeans and Crocs, which would be weird, but whatever, you're not getting in. Doc Martens. You're, you're not getting in because there's a dress code. 7-Eleven has a dress code. No, shoe, no shoes, no, no shirt, no service, right? There's a dress code. Well, the God of heaven, the divine creator of, of the universe and all that is, he has a dress code, and the dress code is perfect love because he is a God of perfect love. The Christian God is not a singularity that spun the universe into existence from power. He is a Father, Son, and Spirit, a mystery, we can see to that, but he was enjoying love from all of eternity before we got here. So everything he created, of course, in power, but primarily an expansion of his love. Therefore, his dress code is perfect love. In the garden in Genesis 3, the, 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 uh, our first parents used their free will for divine treason and chose not to love God, but chose to be their own God, and that has caused humanity to spiral into various forms of self-love, which is why the world is the way that it is today. And because that is true, God has a dress code of divine love, of divine perfect love. And you and I have a problem because we are volatile when it comes to love. None of us can meet God's dress code. So what God did in his great mercy was he came in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ lived the perfectly loving life that you and I can't live, aren't living, desire to live, but we can't do it. And he lived it for us. He lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died an atoning death. He rose again on the third day, ascended to the Father. And that gospel, the reality of that gospel means we have been clothed in Christ, which means the Christian does not fear death. The Christian does not fear judgment. Because our judge is our justifier. He has clothed us. We, we meet the requirements of the dress code because of Jesus. And so therefore, now we desire to live in an imitation to Jesus. This is how we understand this. So let's look at this as we unpack this text in two ways. Um, being called to live for the day and dress for the occasion. First, let's look at living for the day. Look at it, verse 12. It says, the day is almost here. The day is at hand, right? We're called to live for the day. We're not called to live for today. There's a big difference between living for today and living for the day. 
Right? If, you, if we're living for today, the ideology of living for the moment, carpe diem, seize that day, seize the moment, is it comes from the belief that the future is uncertain. The future is uncertain. What happens after your death is uncertain. All you have is the moment, so you need to live for the moment. And the way that you live for the moment is like your king. So in terms of ethics and the laws that govern your life and the ideologies that formulate the way that you kind of go about either your business or your relationships, marriage, uh, you know, friendships, uh, and at all contexts, is you, the way to go about it is your king. Life is short. It's uncertain. We don't know what's happening after. So all you have is the here and now. And so therefore, anything that is a barrier to your joy and your personal fulfillment, you got to get that hurdle out of your life. You're king. That's living for today. But living for the day... What Paul is getting at here is saying actually the future isn't uncertain. It's actually very certain. What happens after death is not uncertain. It's actually very certain because the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the Christian is a teaser trailer. And we know what's coming. We know that death for us is not final. And so to live for that day, to clothe ourselves in a way that is consistent and congruent with that day, this is what the apostle is kind of getting at. And the day, it sounds metaphorical, but it's not metaphorical. When Paul says, live for the day, he's not being metaphorical. He's being literal. This is a massive biblical theme. It is the biblical theme. The day this, uh, that is coming, it is the foundational source of Christian hope. It's just as literal as the day that Christ was born. It's just as literal as the day that he hung on a Roman cross under Pontius Pilate in 33 A.D., it's just as literal as the day that they went to the tomb, the stone was rolled away, it was empty, all of history records it, and it sent Roman, uh, the Roman Empire and the religious leaders in Jerusalem, it sent them both into a spiral. That literally happened in world history. This day is just as literal as all those days, and this day is the coming physical material return of the king. And so the king who is returning is not coming empty-handed. Our salvation and restoration, it ceases to be something that you and I enjoy in part, and it becomes something that we enjoy fully. It ceases to be something that you and I kind of understand and enjoy in a spiritual way, and it becomes something that you and I enjoy in a very spiritual and physical way. As the world is restored, as our bodies are restored, as all things are restored, are restored. It is a not a, a metaphorical day. It is a literal day. So how do we live for that day? When you look at verses 8 to 10, the, the text teaches us an essential connection between loving others and keeping God's law. It's a bold statement because what it's teaching us is that God's law and God's love can't be pitted against each other. The text is teaching us that the most loving thing will always be how God's law instructs our approach to that thing. Whatever God says about that thing, that's the most loving way to approach that thing. That's a challenge for us in a, in a, in a, in a culture thoroughly baptized in autonomy. So the love that keeps being repeated here is the word agape. There's different words in the Greek language for love. We use the same word for everything. I love playing chips. I love my family. There you have it. <clears throat> I love my family more. I felt like I needed to, I felt like I needed to clarify that. <laughs> Some of you are looking at, which is it, preacher? It's my family. But we only have one word for it. In, in the Greek, the, 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 the word that's being used here is agape, which means um, to prefer. It is, the, it is a love of preference, of preferring the other. 
it is uh, important to understand that because this is, at the, this is uh, at the core of what we see when Jesus is going to the cross, even before then when he says, not my will but yours be done. He's saying, like, you know, this is not my, in, in my humanity, this is not my preference to go to this cross, but I'm going to do it because it's agape love, and I prefer what God prefers, and I prefer what's best for humanity, and so there's that preference. And so we're called into this cross-shaped love. And so by connecting God's law and connecting God's love, we come face-to-face with the reality that we are not wiser than God when it comes to loving others in a way that promotes their flourishing. We need to trust God's word and not our instincts. See, because what we say in a situation is a loving thing might actually just be the convenient thing. What we say is the loving thing, it might actually just be the culturally acceptable thing. What we say is the loving thing might actually be a self-serving thing. And so this is why we can't trust our instincts. We must trust God's, the wisdom of God's word. And so all of our cultural conversations around love are quite often an appeal to be led by our own instincts, right? What do you want? Well, if that's what you want, then go after it because after all, you're king. And if you want it, it therefore must be right because you're the king. And what the king wants is right. And so what we learn is, uh, as Christians, is, oh, actually, I already have a king, and the things that he wants are right. So I need to put on that sort of outward-facing, others-serving love, which, of course, makes no sense if all you're living for is today. If all there is is today, then the entire Christian call makes absolutely no sense because the clock is ticking on your enjoyment, so why would you give your life away? But precisely, we're not living for today. We're living for, for this day, and that reorient the way uh, through which we go about, go about life. And so the New Testament is repeatedly warning us against being driven by our own instincts. It's calling us to be guided by the divine law, this law that's outside us, because our instincts are always going to prefer, prefer what serves us, and God prefers that we serve one another. And so consider how living for the day would cause this church community here at Redeemer to relate to the community of KW. If the wisdom of God's law guides the way that we love, then the church will not be this church, we, us. Let's make it personal. We will not be an insular community, uninterested and uninvolved in what's going on in the KW community. That won't describe us. And if the wisdom of God's law guides the way that we love, then we won't abandon our convictions about the guidance of God's word in order to love the community. We won't be insular ignoring the community, and we also won't just concede to the ideology of the greater community because we have a king and we love him and we're led by him. And so when you look at verse 10, it says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. See, love does no harm. And that again, we need the wisdom of God. Because we could easily say, well, you know, this person is acting with real injustice in the office or injustice in the community. But they're a friend. They're a close friend. And if I say something, they're going to be sad. And, we, and love doesn't do harm to people, and I don't want them to be sad, so I'm not going to speak against the injustice that I see in the office. We're just going to let this thing go because we're all about love. Do you see the, the, the problem? 
Who defines harm? It's the wisdom of God. Who defines love? It's the wisdom of God. So therefore, the most loving thing to do is always the thing that God would say, his word would guide us in each situation to actually do what is most loving, to not do harm. Because you see, to leave somebody in their sin is doing harm. I may say, I'm not going to talk to them about their sin because that's way more comfortable for me. But to leave them in it is doing harm. To enable them in it is doing harm. To speak to them and to have an, a, to speak to them about their sin and have that thing explode into a relational fallout is not doing harm. It's uncomfortable, but it's also the loving thing. And so we got to live for the day, not just kind of live for today. And so this is the, a kind of a clarion call to to think about how we would relate to the city. Because if you back up. Uh, the text, you'll see that Paul talks about how do we relate in the church, how do we relate in the city, how do we relate to the government. That was chapters 12 through 13, right? So this is a clarion call to love those who don't share our convictions. Seek the good of a city, even if the city isn't seeking, you know, uh, has no regard for our convictions and isn't seeking our good. God's law cannot be divorced from his love. And so when you look at verse 12, it says the night is almost over, the day is almost here. Just think about that imagery. He's saying the night is almost over, which means even our best days are darkness. I mean, even the most, I mean, life is, life is a paradox. I mean, I know there's difficult and, and terrible and mournful things going on in the world, but there's also beauty in the world as well. And what the text is saying is the night is almost over, which means even our best days are a shadow compared to the day that is coming. And so as we think about this, um, we, we recognize that what's coming is the world that we wish we had. You know, I've mentioned before uh, Peter Hitchens, a British journalist whose brother is uh, Christopher Hitchens, a, a, a world-renowned um, uh, secularist who speaks very strongly against uh, religion in all forms. And Peter Hitchens said this when he, in his book Rage Against God, when he came, came to faith in Christ uh, after years of atheism, he said... I lived in the USSR behind the Iron Curtain, and I've seen what state atheism looks like, and I've concluded that we are homeless utopians. So the idea that we can eradicate the divine and man can elevate and create our own utopia, he looks around at state atheism in the, in the, uh, in the, uh, in the USSR, and he goes, we're homeless utopians. We're, we're, just, we're never going to, we can't create the world that we want. And so what the hope of the day does is it orients us to realize that's precisely what's coming, the, the peace and the unity that we can't seem to grasp, that we only get glimpses of in the here and now, that, of course, as Christians, we, we live to, to uh, be agents of peace and unity, but we recognize Christ is bringing it. We don't bear the burden of that ourselves. There's joy without pain and peace without horizon and life without end that's coming. And if you're only living for today, then time is your enemy. But if you're living for the day, you recognize time is God's ally. If all there is is today, then time is your enemy because it's slowly stripping away your youth, your vitality, and everything that you love. And I'm not being morbid, I'm being rational. That's rational thought, right? We're all headed toward, uh, to borrow uh, from comedian Russell Brand, who wrote a book called Recovery. Everybody's hurtling toward the boneyard, but nobody wants to think about how they're hurtling toward the boneyard. So we hide ourselves in our citadels of glistening screens to distract ourselves so that what we call joy is just one glorious distraction to the next. Because if we stop distracting ourselves to think about where this whole thing is going, that's a dark, dismal place none of us want to be. If we're living for today, time's the enemy. But if we're living for that day, the day, 
Time is God's ally. It is the restoration of all things. It is the foundation of very hope. Not that we become spiritual, ethereal parts of the universe, but that it's really us, really here. Do you like being a human? Good. Do you enjoy sunsets? Great. Do you love the innovation of, of, of human society and just the, the glorious innovations of, 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 of the beauty and the architecture and art and music? Do you, lo- do you enjoy it? Good. Because we're going to enjoy it for all of eternity in a world with no suffering, in a world without sin, with our king at the center. This is the hope of Christian faith. This is the day. And so we've got to clothe ourselves and live in a, in a sense of congruence and hope with, uh, with, that, with that day. Have you ever, you know, this is so hard to, when you talk about, I mean, I can't even grasp it myself when I'm writing these sermons, because you're talking about what is to come, and it's, Words don't do it justice. But have you ever had a moment where uh, you're, you're laughing, something happens, you're laughing, you're having fun, you, something's happening, and you just, for a moment, the joy of that thing, you forget everything, all your problems for like five minutes. Like even if you're, even if you're in the middle of a terrible season in your life, and then something happens that makes you laugh. And like just for a brief moment, it's like, Oh man, for five minutes there, I forgot that my life is a gong show. Have you ever had that? That is the day that Paul is saying. That's why Paul says the night is almost over. The day is coming. I can't explain it to you, church, but what the text is getting us to see is our best day is a shadow compared to what is coming. We, we will look back with a sense of, of, of wonder at what God has done in his great grace. It will eradicate the sorrow of the present, this day that is, that is coming. When Nigel was a little boy, oh my goodness, I forgot to ask you if I could tell the story. Is it okay if I tell the story? Oh my goodness. I usually, I always check because you don't want to, you don't want to. He was very little. When Nigel was very little, uh, it was last week, No. It wasn't. Uh, if you told him you were going to do something, every day he thought about it. He reminded you about it. Hey, remember this thing we're going to do. He looked forward to it. He just was continually, he was about it. He talked about it. He talked about it every day until the day. And it got to the point where Susan and I were like, maybe we'll just tell him on the day. <laughs> you, you couldn't do it. Hey, Nigel, this weekend we got to do this errand. We're going to run out here and I'm going to take you to McDonald's and I'm going to get you some fries. And he would just wake up every day. It just every day. How? But you know, as adults, we don't actually grow out of that. Think about you, 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 you put a date on the counter to get together with friends to eat. You're thinking about it. You're looking forward to it. Oh, and that's going to be great. You plan a vacation. You're thinking about it. You're looking forward to it. We are hardwired for hope. Humans are hardwired for hope. We go through life looking forward for the next hopeful thing. That's what we do. And the most happy moments in your life are when hope was realized. And the most devastating points in your life, if you map them out, is when hope was crushed. We are hardwired for hope. We live from hope to hope. And so Paul says, I got good news. The night is almost over. There is a hope that it's coming. So you've got to wake up every morning like, about this gospel. Because it will change. It will, ch- it will not take away the tears, but it will give you joy in the tears. It will not take away the darkness, the sadness, the moments of worry, the moments of anxiety, the moments of depression. It won't take those things away. It will be with you 
pervasively in the midst of the darkest storm. We live for the day. And, and we dress for the occasion. So we look at, this, uh, at, at what he says in verse 11. He says, wake up. Remember when you were a teenager and your parents would wake you up and you're like a vampire? They're like, you've been sleeping for 16 hours. You're like, ah. They pull back your, 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 uh, your, your curtains. Well, you don't have curtains, but let's just pretend we had curtains. The light comes in. Oh, wake up. Now you have teenagers and now you have to do that. Maybe you had a parent. You know, maybe, maybe your, your, your dad was like, you got to wake up. The day's half gone. The sunlight's burning. And maybe you had a mom who was like, it's the morning time the birds are singing or maybe your dad was like it's the morning time and your mom was like they got burning daylight i don't know how it was in your house but maybe you had that situation and what paul is saying is he says church we got to wake up and he doesn't mean wake up like from your nap you know pay attention to what's going on not only that we're going to get to that it does mean that but i want you to know that this word you know the word wake up, it's the same word Jesus used to describe, on the third day I'll be raised. And so the Apostle Paul says, wake up from your slumber. That's a euphemism that's making the church think about waking up from slumber, like rising from death. This is not the first time in Scripture this kind of idea has arisen. So what Paul is saying is, we actually got to wake up and live in a profoundly new way. Not to earn anything, that's done in Jesus not so that God will be happy with us. That's over because of grace. Those are settled issues. You are clothed in Christ. That is a reality. The Apostle Paul is saying we've got to dress for the day, live in congruence with what's true, with what's already been done in Christ. And so what you know, would it look like, this profound you know, approaching of new day? Well, it's you know, precisely because we're not the walking dead, who are just looking forward to the grave and trying not to think about it so we can stay happy. But as Christians, because death is something that's sorrowful, but it has no sting, we're not nursed to sleep by the lullabies of the world. We don't let everybody and their brother and HBO and Netflix and this person and that person sing into our souls the lullabies that put us to sleep so that we don't you know, to sort of numb the pain of the moment so that we can, you know, we don't let them sing into our hearts where we should find our security, where we should find our identity, how we can make it through, you know, the day. We get, we, we wake up and we get dressed for the day and we don't let the culture dress us or disciple us and we don't let the culture dress our children and disciple our children. We don't do it. We're awake. Paul's like, church, you need to get woke in like every conceivable version of being woke. That's what he's saying. And he's not saying it in a condemning way. He's saying it in a liberating way. He's saying Christ has done this, so you're not actually completing anything. You're just living in congruence with what, with what uh, God has done. When you look at verses 12 to 14, you've got this imagery of being clothed in Christ and, and also being dressed in armor. Well, armor is for battle. So where's the battle? It's not with people. Battle is not with the secular humanists. Battle is not with the Muslims or the Hindus or the atheists or the agnostics. The battle is not with people. This battle is in, is in our hearts and our minds. It is a battle for the throne of the soul. And Paul is saying we've got to wake up and dress ourselves so that we live for the day. And that has a profound orientation on how you'll relate with what you're dealing with on Monday when that is in, when that is in view. And 
It's this lifelong journey of learning to love and care, resemble, imitate Jesus. And of course, we're, we're flawed and failed at that, but that's the battle. In 1678, John Bunyan writes a book called Pilgrim's Progress, this fantastic allegory to the Christian faith. And the, the, the main character, Christian, it, Christian, is deeply burdened and he's weighed down. The burden cannot come off his back. He's afraid for the day. He's afraid of death. He's afraid of judgment. He's afraid of the afterlife. He's just crushed. And he meets a friend and the friend's name is Evangelist. And Evangelist says, if you want to get the burden off your back, you've got to walk towards the celestial city. So he starts walking towards the celestial city, this metaphor for, the, uh, for, uh, for heaven. But the road is perilous and Christian is deeply flawed and he's failing and he nearly dies. He nearly dies in a bog of sadness in this dark place called the Gulf of Despondence. And then in the Gulf of Despondence, where he's about to drown and die, another character comes, and the character's name is Help. And Help saves Christian, guides Christian out of the Gulf of Despondence, and he eventually gets to the narrow gate. And when he gets to the narrow gate, which is a symbol of salvation, it's really evident that the only way he got there was by grace. It's super clear Christian did not get to the narrow gate because he was a great little soldier. It's really clear that he got there by grace. He gets to the hill of redemption, he sees the cross, and the burden falls off of Christian's back. And then he's taken into an armory and he's given armor. Why? Why is he given armor? Because even though he's a recipient of great grace, the road between the narrow gate and the celestial city is full of battles. It is wrought with problems. So he's taken into this armory and he's given, uh, he's, he's given armor for his journey from the narrow gate to the to celestial city. And when he gets there, he meets a demon named Apollyon. And Apollyon turns his story. Apollyon takes everything that had happened into his life and he turns it against him to accuse him, points out every failure, every flaw, every, every sin, laughs at his armor. You think you can be clothed in this? This is not even who you are. Apollyon says to him, you fainted at first setting out when you were almost choked in the gulf of despondence. You attempted to rid yourself of your burden in the wrong ways. And when you speak of the journey and what you've heard and seen, you are inwardly desirous of vainglory and all that you say and you do. And Christian looks at the demon and he says, it's all true and more, but I have the king's pardon. And then he battles the demon for what seems like ages. And after he battles the demon, he's bloodied and beautiful. And that is the Christian life. Battles in the soul and in the mind where we come out bloodied and also more beautiful. Because not only are we living for the day, but we're dressing for the occasion. This desire to imitate Christ from sheer love for him because of his grace. The gospel announces that by grace we are already clothed in Christ. And if we are, then we're to live like we are clothed in him. And the reality of his goodness and his love and his grace, they go deep into our heart. They reorient our mind. And then the goodness and the love of God comes out through our hands. This is why it's very practical. It gives us a clear relationship between God's love and his law. This is why love and law are put together because, of course, we're saved by grace, but we need God's law because love has no moral compass of its own. Selena got it right when she said the heart wants what it wants. She's right. She's a philosopher because the heart wants what it wants, and it has no moral compass in of, of itself, and we need the wise guidance of God's law. 
Or we will be driven through life by our instincts. Theologian John Stott says it this way, love was meant to be sacrificial, but without boundaries, without God's law, sacrificial love becomes self-love. And when you look at verse 13, you see the ramifications of self-love. You see the ramifications of the life curved inward rather than the love of God and love of others curved outward. Notice the things in verse 13 that the Apostle Paul lists. Okay, it's not exhaustive. It's meant to get us to be reflective. Right, he talks about wine, sex, arguments, and zeal. Wine, sex, arguments, and zeal. Four things that are actually good when guided by God's loving law. But those four things are detrimental when they're guided by our unbridled impulses. Right? Wine enjoyed according to God, with God's loving law. That can foster community with others. It's all through the whole Bible, them gathering around having uh, wine in celebration. But if wine is guided by your unbridled impulse, then drunkenness hurts others. In one context, it fosters community with others. In the other context, it hurts others. Sex, enjoyed according to God's law, within the context of marriage, enables the flourishing of family and city and society. Sex, driven by our unbridled impulses, it hinders the flourishing of family. It hinders the flourishing of of, uh, city, and it hinders, hinders, hinders the flourishing of society. And then you've got arguments. Paul puts down about don't be uh, up with quarreling. Well, arguments that are guided by God's law, arguments can promote mercy and justice to serve others. But if you're not guided by God's law and you're guided by your impulses, then they're not arguments that are uh, promoting mercy and justice. They're quarrels that hurt others. Passion in accordance with God's law manifests in zeal that benefits others. Passion driven by unbridled impulse, it manifests in jealousy that hurts others. Verse 10, again, love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And if Jesus Christ did not already fulfill the law for us, then this this command would crush us. But he did fulfill the law, so this doesn't crush us, this guides us. You look at verse 12 again, it talks about putting off darkness and putting on light, this image of being clothed. And it's inviting us to think, this is not abstract and spiritual, this is practical. Do I relate to this church community? or classmates, or people at work in a self-absorbed way? And what would it look like to put off that darkness of self-absorption and relate to them in selfless, loving ways? Remember when I was in high school, we would, when we were, uh, you know, because you're uh, so kind when you're a teenager, we would uh, call certain people posers, based on what, because of what they were wearing. We're like, well, you're, you're, oh man, you can't wear that football jacket. You, you bought it, you don't play on the team, you're a poser. Man, you can't wear that Metallica shirt because you're not hardcore unless you live hardcore. Because you're not hardcore. Man, you're a poser. And so we were like, you're, you're wearing something that doesn't match who you are, you're a poser. And you know, we can read texts like this and feel like posers. Because we know our hearts and our minds, and we look in the, in, in the mirror, and we know the dark and unevangelized places where we don't resemble Jesus, and we can read texts like this that are calling us clearly to imitate Jesus, and we can feel like posers. And so, what do we do? Well, here's the good news. While the Spirit convicts us of our sin in ways that we're nothing like Jesus, there is no condemnation for sin And by that same grace, the Spirit is making you like Jesus. The Christian life is like having our big brother, Jesus, give us a hoodie 
that says love written across the chest. And it fits him perfectly. But we're drowning in it. And over the course of our lives, we slowly grow into it. And we, we never perfectly fit it. But we love our big brother. And because of him, God is our father. So we put the hoodie on. We want to imitate him. We wake up every day and we wear it. How do we as Christians know the dark corners of our own hearts and minds and perhaps we feel like total failures or phonies or perhaps we feel like Christian in, in uh, Pilgrim's Progress or we feel like posers? How do we choose to love the people who are sitting next to us in church today or in our workplaces or at schools who have not experienced us as loving? How do we make that change and not feel like total fakes? We remember the gospel. In the words of 1838 hymn writer Samuel Grandy, though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knows none. Let's pray.